Hello and welcome to the Explore Our Nature podcast, the podcast where I get to interview some of the most insightful and passionate practitioners and researchers within the area of nature-based practice. I'm your host, Paul Mosley, and if you go to www.paulmosley, that's P-A-U-L-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y dot org forward slash podcasts, You'll get to see all the different show notes of things that we refer to throughout the show and how to contact and get in touch with our guests. So, let's get on with today's show. Today's guest is Fern Freud, and I've known Fern for a few years now, um, really inspiring individual, has grown up foraging and has a real deep sense around what foraging is and the responsibilities that we have for nature at the same time as the, the benefit it gives us. So Fern is based down in Sussex in the south of the United Kingdom. Uh, she runs foraging courses, um, and so you'll be able to get a link to her courses to go and see what she's up to. Uh, and she also has an amazing uh, social media presence. What I mean by that is she is incredibly generous with what she's doing, uh, what she's exploring, what she's creating from forage materials, um, and can take the simplest of ingredients, what we would call weeds perhaps, and turn them into the most beautifully ornate dishes uh, that I've seen. Um, so during this conversation, we actually get into a little bit of her history, um, some of her philosophy, some of the practical steps um, that you can take if you want to get into foraging. Um, and we also start looking at some of the more sort of spiritual aspects. So we start to look at what the meaning of foraging is, not just the actual act of it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Fern. I know I got a lot from it. At the end, I'll go into some of the things that are on my mind after having that conversation with her. But for now, please welcome Fern Freud. Hi Fern, thanks very much for joining me. How's everything with Hi, you? thanks for having me. Very good, yeah, I've been um, been getting out and foraging a lot during lockdown, so I'm a, I'm a happy woman. How about you? Yeah, uh, I mean, kind of living vicariously through your Instagram, to be honest, a little bit. Um, <laughs> My daughter's home, so I'm homeschooling her and what have you. I mean, very fortunate to live next to forests I can disappear into occasionally. But um, yeah. what, I, what I love about your Instagram is, um, firstly, it's so photogenic. You take beautiful photographs and videos of food um, oh, and forage you. materials. Um, but it's, it's the, and this is why I wanted to get you on, it's, it's the constant interaction you have. So I know that you were brought up in a foraging family. Um, so yeah. I wonder if you could maybe just give us a bit of a, an idea of what that was like and how did that play out day to day with your family? Yeah, sure. So um, it was it was a bit of a late introduction. I think I was probably about 10 or 11. Um, and my dad was always really interested in, in mushrooms. Um, to be honest, he's also really into kind of... Uh, like shamanism and um you know spiritual experiences so I think you know you can guess how he got into mushrooms <laughs> but I think he ended up finding them you know so 
so magical even even just the edible ones that he wanted to share that with us so mm. um we'd quite often spend whole days going out over the downs and picking one of each different mushroom and putting it in a basket and he did know a fair bit about mushrooms but yeah. because you know he wasn't an expert it was a real we were learning it all together yeah. so we'd fill up our bar baskets and we'd go home and we'd pour them out over the kitchen table when we'd get out all our books and we'd draw them and we'd cut them up and you know it was it we were all learning how to how to identify mushrooms together yeah. um and it was just such a magical experience that it really kind of just set me off wanting to know what all the edible foods are out there and I mean that's quite yeah. a deep end to start with there's so many people that are into their foraging, but are still kind of slightly apprehensive about mushrooms. There's um, a wonderful story by a guy called uh, Professor Gordon Hillman, who's unfortunately no longer with us at Kew Gardens, and and he was sort of telling us this as a as a warning shot to never get overconfident and complacent, because he took home a whole bunch of mushrooms and gave himself one of the deepest trips he ever thought humanly yeah. possible by simply not paying attention and just glossing over and assuming they were of a certain species. Yeah, I mean, I massively agree, and I, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that that be the best way to start <laughs> anyone's foraging journey. It's, it's much better to be more cautious of mushrooms, and obviously, the kind of national fear we have around mushrooms is, mm. is clever. It's, it's a good one for us to have, um, but at the same time, you know, there are, there are countries where it's just part of their culture. If you go to Poland or Russia, they're, you know, they, they just send their kids out to pick mushrooms. And while we should be slightly scared and slightly frightened, because there are lots of mushrooms in England that will kill you, you know, in not very nice ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think that fear kind of sometimes takes over and people don't get to experience the, the magic of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, and again, talking to that point about the cultural in Sweden, it's not everywhere now, but I still know in Sweden that uh, you can go into chemists and they will be able to identify yeah. things for you in certain parts of Russia as well. So, yeah, mm. like you say, it's that you can have some really deep cultural roots in there. And if you mm. miss out on those or, or they get kind of cut off, but the fear is useful, but equally you, you can go and you can learn these things. It's about finding the right person, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I do think it's really important while we kind of did it all from books mm. and a little bit from dad, it, it, I always think if you're going to get into mushroom hunting, you do need to go on, on a course or go out with an expert yeah. because it's, you know, our brains are wired to, to, to learn from stories and, you know, you're going to create that story of, oh, I went out with the forager and then we walked through the woods and I saw this amazing thing and then we found this mushroom and that's going to be how you remember which are edible and which aren't and the smell and the touch and the taste. Mm. So it is a, a much longer process with books. But to go out and really do it yourself is, is definitely the, the best way to do it. So you've obviously blossomed out from mushrooms into a whole range of different things. Um, and one of the things I love about foraging is it can really transform the way people look at the landscape. What was a weed, suddenly mm. it becomes a beautiful salad leaf or, or just a, a decoration that lifts their, their cooking to a, a different level, even if not necessarily through the flavour, just through the act of, I gathered this, it's from, it's from the wild, so to speak. So, so what yeah. has that journey been like and, and what in particular areas are you excited by or you know, really into at the moment? 
Well, uh, yeah, like you say, weeds weeds just become exciting. And as much as I forage for, you know, wild mushrooms and we do tree resins and, and tree saps, just just the wild greens that are out at the moment are incredible. And things like stinging nettles and, as you say, dandelions and daisies and things that you've already got a connection with and they're already going to be easy to ID because, you know, there's hardly anyone in England would look at a nettle and go oh I'm not sure I'm not sure if that is a nettle mm. um and just kind of really getting to know those ingredients and really explore how they've been used in our history and how many incredible things you can make with them so we've been on a bit of a like nettle week because we found a great patch with these absolutely monster sized nettle leaves so we've been doing kind of nettle tempura nettle crisps we found out that some of the earliest fishing nets that they found were made from nettle fibres. So we were like, oh, well, we better try that. So we've been <laughs> making like nettle fibres and green dye made from nettles. So I think it's really, it's really the weeds that are kind of exciting me at the moment and really delving into them and, and learning about all the amazing things you can do with them. And I think what it does as well is it really connects you to the landscape. You know, there, like you say in there about there's a patch of nettles. Next year, you'll notice those nettles coming up, and if there are more or they're, you know, fewer in number. Um, so, so could you maybe describe to me what, in your mind's eye, that the landscape is like around you? You know, where do you go to find things on a regular basis? Yeah, so we kind of walk for maybe 20 minutes through the town to get up to the South Downs. Um, and then we've got um, quite a lot of agricultural land with little kind of random thickets of forest. And then we're quite lucky to have some like big wild meadows. Mm. Um, so we tend to, on the way there, we'll walk through hedgerows, you know, and even just alleyways where that are just left and they're not sprayed and they're just kind of left to grow wild mm. so that's where we kind of get our weedy bits and then quite often as well we'll stop at people's houses in the town while we're on our way to the downs because another thing I really love uh like you know garden plants that have been introduced like cherry blossom mm. or um, lilacs or wisteria and you know they're such beautiful flowers and they make such pretty food so we'll quite often stop and knock at someone's door and be like oh could we take a few of your lilac blooms would yeah. you mind i was going to say um, if you didn't mention it so then kind of... yeah making sure you ask people rather than become that person that's <laughs> yeah, up yeah. somebody's tree in their garden again <laughs> you know yeah, we definitely always ask. I'm not just urban foraging, hopping into people's <laughs> gardens. <laughs> but it's nice because quite often, I think at first I really worried that I'd just be that mad woman who was knocking on people's doors being like, can I steal your flowers? <laughs> but quite often people are just really excited that, they, you know, they, they might not know that they can eat cherry blossom or make a jam with it or, you know, put their lilacs into cakes. or So usually they're just really happy that you've informed them that they can eat the lilac bush out the front and they're, they're happy for you to take some um so they yeah, that's kind of one of the one of the stops <laughs> <laughs> in fact um you did a, a video on magnolia tea yeah just recently and i noticed a few gardens down they had a magnolia tree and i've been to them before they've got a beautiful weeping willow which overhangs uh, the roadway and i've taken cuttings off and uh, made baskets and things obviously always asking them but uh, I, I think I found their line when I knocked on the door uh, a little while ago and just said, do you mind if I just pop around and grab some of your magnolia flowers? I'll make a tea and I'll give you a bunch. And then you could see them processing in their mind of what is this going about now? The willow I could get, the, the tea, I'm not too sure. 
And she said, uh, oh, I'll ask my husband and we'll get back to you. So I think I found their line there. So yeah, that's, that. that sounds like a no to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, what have been, in your experience of teaching people foraging, what have been some of the big wow moments for people? Um, I think for other people, it's I think people are always surprised by the plants that they, they know but they didn't know were edible and they yeah. didn't know all the medicinal uses for you know like people see primroses and wild violets and um and you know really familiar plants when they're going on their walks but they're kind of amazed at the kind of plethora of uses there are for such a, a simple and familiar plant and also i think people are surprised by how just pleasant and heartwarming the experience of foraging is and you know we've been we're hardwired to love foraging and if we didn't love foraging and if our brains didn't light up when we foraged our ancestors would have died a long time ago and getting together as a as a group which then turns into a community and going out over the fields and slowly picking your wild garlic or your flowers and sitting around a campfire and eating together I think people come along for information and education and then I think they're always quite amazed with just how how they feel and how Mm. enriched they feel after the experience because it is you know it does take you back and it does really make you feel good that you that you're just sitting around a campfire and you've picked these ingredients yourself Mm. um and there is something just really nourishing and homely about the whole thing and I, I well I like to think that that's what people really go away with the kind of love for the whole experience of it People often talk about tracking as one of the big influences in human development. Um, But I think equally, if not more so, foraging. I just don't think it's been given quite as much attention. But one of the interesting patterns I've noticed is that being incredibly fortunate enough to, you know, have worked with lots of different indigenous cultures, the thing that you find is that the, uh, the men tend to go out for a couple of hours, do a bit of hunting come back feeling very proud of themselves and very victorious, obviously. Um, but in terms of actually knowing the landscape, then it's, it's always the women because they have the knowledge of the plants and, and seasonal change as well. Um, which, and I find that physical understanding of the environment such an important aspect. Yeah, definitely. And it does, it, it brings you close with it. You feel... You know, there's just certain walkways that you do that you might do every year. Mm. And, you know, even so when I first started getting into foraging, I I really didn't take note of what was growing around me. And it took me years and years and years to form a connection with, you know, like a hawthorn and be able to look at it and go, that's a hawthorn. And the way I got there is I'd had to look at this hawthorn bush throughout the year. I Mm. needed to know what it looked like in winter and what happened to it in spring and then autumn and summer. and yeah, I do feel like it's a it's a really slow journey, but once you're there, you you look at the landscape in a completely different way, and and also it it links you very much with the energy of of the earth. You know, in the winter when when all the energy of the plants are drawn down into the roots, and that's then where you focus your attention. You're gathering roots, or you're gathering. Um, medicinal mushrooms and then spring comes and you have this huge burst of energy Mm. and you really feel 
you really feel that abundance and your the, the way you cook in the kitchen changes with the season and it's all you do you you form a different connection with with the landscape and with the seasons and i think there's been a little bit of a push for people to think more seasonally i mean the fact that we're still getting you know strawberries in december it starts to hint yeah. that you know this is maybe not local or is it maybe not yeah. in the most natural ways grown as a big infrastructure there greenhouse etc cetera, etc cetera. um what are some of your favorites um what are your top tips for people that are out there that you were trying to convince maybe to go into foraging what would be the three or four plants that you would try to get them to try well i think it's good i think it's good to start with plants that you already know mm. Because when you're foraging, you want to be able to look at a plant that you're going to eat with 100% certainty. So as sure as you will look at a blackberry and, and know that is a blackberry, you want to be able to look at something, you know, like a woodhaven or whatever it might be, a certain mushroom, and you want to have that complete certainty that you're going to eat it. So I think probably if you're just beginning on your foraging journey, the best place to start is with those plants that you know and 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 you can recognize instantly um so i think one of my favorites this year to kind of introduce people to is three-cornered leek mm -hmm. i don't know about where you are but it is it's in everyone's garden down here um and lots of people think it's wild garlic because it has this really strong oniony smell um but they're not sure and then they look at pictures of wild garlic and it doesn't have those kind of broad round leaves and mm -hmm. it looks a bit different so they just leave it um but, it, you know, it's just an incredible plant. And if you've got it in your garden, you never need to buy spring onions again. You can make pestos with it. You can use those lovely oniony tasting flowers on salads and on top of soups. So I think, yeah, kind of maybe even going out into your garden or going out just where you walk the dog and, and seeing and maybe picking those plants that you know you can recognise instantly mm. because you already have a connection with and then finding out what you can do with them, I think is a really good way to start. And also not to pile too much on because mm. it can be a bit overwhelming. Just to take it slow and start with one or two plants at a time, I think is is always a really good idea. Yes, and I think particularly so with, with mushrooms. Um, I, I myself have been in the situation of having gone out with an expert who reels off 30 or 40 of them, suddenly feeling this onerous task of learning all of these where actually it's better to maybe one or two a year and take it at a you know, oh, really really slow pace um so i mean you mentioned nettles and, and, and blackberries and what have you and i think perhaps one of the things that well i was going to say i haven't highlighted as much previously but it's also because i get some personal satisfaction out of it which is telling people about our taste palettes now have different different expectations than they would have yeah. done previously. Um, one of my favourite teas is horsetail tea. Um, okay. I think I messaged you about this the other day, didn't I? Um, yeah. And I've given it to other people, and I've learned there are three distinct faces of being displeasant, <laughs> uh, you know, not enjoying the flavours. It comes on in waves, uh, which was a new discovery. But you know, from your experience as well, do, how do you get people around the idea of these are going to taste different to what you maybe might imagine they could? Yeah, I think it's always, I do always kind of start with the history of foraging and how there's there's almost a bit of a barrier now to really enjoying some flavours because it is something that you have to get used to. And I remember when I went on my first foraging course, 
I, oh, the leaves were they're just bitter. Mm. I was like, well, that's bitter. Here's another bitter one. Oh, thanks. That one's bitter too. <laughs> but it was interesting to me to get used to those flavours, understand why we're not used to that bitterness anymore, how everything is grown to be as sweet as possible, as fatty as possible, as, as um, you know, just appealing to us as possible. And to really get to know those bitter flavours and be able to get used to them and take pleasure from them and, and start to notice their different flavours was incredible. And another thing I learned, which kind of made me fall in love with those bitter flavours, is that the, the bitterness actually stimulates your your gut to produce more bile and then your body will draw out more of the nutrients from those bitter flavors so in the winter when all the greens get really bitter and there's a lot less food around those bitter foods are actually helping you draw out more nutrients from the kind of scarce amount of food that you have mm. so kind of little incredible facts like that make you care less about the flavor or you know how much it's going to taste like you bought it from tesco and and more about how they're ancient and lost flavors that you're kind of reviving mm. and i think that's that's really important to know about the importance of the dish and the history of the dish as, as well as just the flavor of the dish yeah yesterday i was um chatting to a couple of individuals and we were talking about flint napping and we were talking about john lord who's um one of, if not perhaps, you know, the, the greatest ambassador for flint napping that there is. And uh, he said uh, years and years and years ago that when you're flint napping, you can be completely absorbed by that moment and you're in exactly the same mindset as your ancestors. And just as uh, you brought up there, there is this spiritual aspect as well of thinking about yeah. these are the flavours and these are the experiences that my ancestors have had um, yeah. and being able to connect with it on a whole different level. Yeah. Yeah, it is incredible. And there's certain plants that you know would have been really popular. You know, like when you have something like ground ivy that just has so many common folk names. Mm -hmm. And the only way to make sense of that is it was a really important and really common plant in so many areas of England that and each little town had a different name for it. So that's something that you can just be certain that, you know, it would it would have been put in dishes and it would have been used so frequently. And the fact that you can give that dish to someone and they're gonna like relive that experience and they never would have had that experience. They never would have tried that distinct flavour before is is an incredible thing. Is there anything that you think has a really distinct flavour that you wish people would give more of an opportunity to discover. So for me, um, cattail is one of them, mm. where you go through, you know, you, you wade into a swamp, essentially, you pull out these huge roots, <laughs> uh, which are slimy worms, really. That's kind of the, the way you can describe them. Then you have to roast them, then you open them up, and then you can strip off the starch or just suck it out with your teeth. It's not an elegant mm. affair. And, um, <laughs> but the flavour, when people get to that point, they say, wow, this is like sweet potato. Um, but it's hard sometimes to get them through that because there could be perhaps a lot of processing. Um, mm. So, yeah, are there any foods that you like to forage where there is some commitment required there? Well, I think probably birchap for me mm. is something that is so special and so incredible. But quite a lot of the time when people try it for the first time, <laughs> They kind of go, oh, yeah, it's quite watery. 
and you're like no you don't get you don't understand <laughs> you know because it, it you know it is it is a very watery solution but it's there's something different about it it's so fresh and it's so alive and it's so grounding mm. it's just a completely different um drink to you know having a glass of water and it's been drawn up through the ground from a tree and you know i think once you really sit with it and once you really connect to the process of drawing out birch sap and and slow down and really taste it it is just it's a real spiritual drink absolutely and it's amazing how much the flavor can change during the course of a few weeks or even from place to place if you were to go somewhere where well, where I am, for example, it's at the top of a hill. So the water gets drained away quite quickly. So the, t- the sap mm-hmm. actually tastes a little bit richer, a little bit sweeter. And the way that I usually describe it to people is it's like a flat, really flat lemonade. You know, you've got this okay, slight yeah. acidity, a slight sweetness to it. Um, mm. But then if, if I was to go further down into the, the wetter areas, then any time of year, it's, it's a, a subtler flavour. Um, because of that and I have to say that this year because I've had a challenging year the last year this year particularly stood out for me as a as a moment of rejuvenation of of you know spring is here uh, of optimism because of, of taking the land literally inside of me and feeling rejuvenated because of that yeah so do you have any uh, favorite recipes at the moment oh well I've really been enjoying homemade pasta Mm. so it hasn't it's not something I've done before and I haven't I haven't done it any other years because it's just seemed like such a long process to get pasta (laughs) but I just love it you can add so many kind of we've tried nettle pasta and wild garlic pasta and just the the flavor that you get from it is is so so lovely Mm. and to have such a simple dish that you've literally made from scratch I think is just really enjoyable so because obviously everyone's in quarantine I've definitely because I'm not doing my courses anymore have had a lot more time on my hands so I think yeah we've we've been doing a lot of slow food a lot of bread a lot of pasta a kind of a lot of staples just to really test the waters of how how self-sustainable we can be (laughs) um so yeah that's that's been a really good one and also because it's that time of year I'm kind of really enjoying all the garden plants coming up at the moment and although they're not native I just think you know you kind of get you get such incredible flavors and such such perfumes and all with a slight difference and as I said they just make such pretty food so we've also been making a lot of sweet treats like donuts and cakes and things we probably shouldn't be having every day but (laughs) So you actually um, gather and, and supply local restaurants. That's right, isn't it? Well, I I do it very frequently. Sorry, very infrequently. Yeah. And just for a few restaurants, because for me, I'm not overly comfortable with supplying huge amounts of forage mm. ingredients to restaurants. And I feel like I am not 100% that that is a really sustainable thing to do yet just because where I am and to be honest I I feel much more at ease with giving people information and educating people and giving them all the resources they need to make their own decision and look at a patch of land and be like is this sustainable and I never want to put myself in a position where I feel like okay I have to take this whole crop Mm. because that's what this restaurant needs and that's what I have promised them. So 
I do it a little bit, but I don't kind of sign myself up to a particular amount or because that's what foraging is. You, yeah. you know, you never know what you're going to get and you never know how much nature's going to provide you. And it really is about working with the land rather than trying to fix your imposed idea of how much you're going to go and get. Yeah, it's about, like you said, working with the land rather than making the land work for you. But I think it's a exactly. really, really fantastic thing because um, obviously the restaurants are wanting to explore and experiment, which is mm. wonderful, because obviously they can – it's like getting food from your mum, isn't it? You kind of just trust that it's all right. So yeah. if someone goes to a restaurant and there's something different in there and they maybe question and or maybe it's even actually you know explained to them, oh, this actually includes locally foraged X, Y, or Z, mm. they get a pass because this is coming from a restaurant. Um, mm. You know, if you turned up to someone in the middle of a street and said, here, try this, I found it growing, there's a whole <laughs> yeah. different level of relationship that's required there. Um, yeah. So I think that is fantastic. And obviously the fact that they have been able to find someone like yourself who, you know, is really conscious of how they're doing it and really thorough in what they're gathering as well, uh, which I think is fantastic. Um, is there anything that you've yet to explore and experiment with? Is there anything out there that you're wanting to try? Well, in foraging terms, I've still never found a morel. Mm. And I, I mean, you know, if you're a forager and you talk to other foragers, that's kind of like the highlight of people's year. That's the badge, so I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm still looking for morels. Um, but in terms of kind of general exploration i think foraging has really opened me up to a whole kind of world of like bushcraft and survival skills and really working with the land and ancient crafts um so i'm really hoping to kind of explore more of that this year and what i'd really like to do when quarantine is over is do a little trip around the uk and and meet people who are doing um you know, like I've already spoken to a few people, like there's a guy called um, Alex Pohl who makes absolutely beautiful hand-forged, like, knives and axes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, old um, willow basket makers and and kind of bushcraft experts. And I'm really kind of excited to be able to trade my foraging skills with those kind of skills and just, yeah, explore that world a bit more and see see, yeah, what, what I can glean from other areas of... Yeah, fantastic, and and maybe even um, pick up some skills on how to build shelves and things like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> I do need those skills. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the videos of you massively trying to over-engineer a garden project. Yeah, it did not go well, and I <laughs> as soon as I posted it, I immediately received about fifty messages from carpenters and builders saying that shelf's not going to stay up. Yeah. Don't put anything on it, and yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> So um, so how can people get in touch with you and kind of see what you're up to and, and, and look at maybe coming on a foraging course with you? Um, so, yeah, foraging online, if you're kind of not based in Sussex, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and I'm foraged by Fern. Um, so I've really been focusing on taking people on little virtual foraging walks at the moment because we're all stuck indoors. Um, but once quarantine is over and if you can make your way over to Sussex, uh, then I advertise my course dates on my website, which is foragedbyfern.com and they'll also be on my Facebook as well. Lovely. Fantastic. So thank you very, very much for uh, your time and your insight and sharing your experiences. Um, oh, no and look pleasure. forward to talking to you again soon.
Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I have to say that straight after this conversation, um, I had to go straight outside and go and do some foraging because it just, Fern was so animate, animate, is that a word? Animated about foraging. Um, and I hadn't been doing it for a, a few days that it really just gave me the, the drive to go out and do it. So fortunately for me, in my garden, there's a number of things growing. So I just went out and gathered some bittercress and dandelion leaves, um, Got some mint, which is obviously grown rather than you know wild there. Um, but it's also making me really want to go down to the woodland near me, which has a river running through it, where there are acre, acres upon acres of ramsons. Um, the thing that really stirred for me in terms of thinking about my practice here was about how can we have very significant connections to things and how they can really be symbolic of our relationship with nature. So for me, there's the birch sap. Um, Firm was talking about you know, a, a patch of nettles coming up. And it was making me think about you know, how in our local landscapes can we start to have these seasonal crops really play a role in our life. And, and this is nothing new. If you go into the fields of you know, permaculture and you know, areas like that, agroforestry, very much they are communicating the importance of sustainability and about cycle and about seasonal rhythms. But stepping outside of those particular approaches, just foraging as a skill set can have this deeply spiritual, philosophical kind of aspect dimension to it, where we are, we're thinking about how can these small, humble plants, A, have meaning, and create you know, a richer sense of what nature is. We're not as dismissive of it just being a weed. As my grandpa, and as I'm sure as everybody else's grandpa used to say, there's no such thing as a weed, just a plant in a place you didn't plan to grow it. But this sense of we can have a deeper appreciation for the plants themselves. We can have a, a richer sense of the landscape around us by having these regular places we go and find particular species. But then also it's the, the culture of bringing those into our homes and having a celebration with them, so to speak. Um, you know, making the first literal you know, garlic bread using wild garlic and ramsons, making the first bread of the season, um, collecting the first birch sap, looking at the dandelion roots later in the year. You know, all of these various things provide us with a year-round calendar um, and it made me think there was a, a few different books that I've always loved, you know, some that are just encyclopedic in their knowledge. Uh, I'm thinking of things like Wild Food by Ray Mears and Professor Gordon Hillman, um, who I think we mentioned during the chat. Um, you've also got things like Food for Free by Richard Maybe. Um, but then you've got things like The Forager's Calendar, by John Wright. Um, Fern mentioned one of his books that he's done through River Cottage, but one of his other books, The Forager's Calendar, again is this lovely journey throughout time, looking at the, the different species, their seasonality, um, and, and the things that you can do with them. So my takeaway from this is to carry on enjoying foraging, really appreciate what it can do for other people in terms of enriching their landscape and their sense of place, 
but I want to perhaps make more celebration of bringing things into the family home. So I'm interested in what it is that you took away from that. Um, if you want to grab any of the sort of links and, and references, and if you want to find those books that we mentioned and, and I've just commented on, if you go to www.paulmosley, that's P-A-U-L-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y.org forward slash podcast, you can find this particular podcast and you'll find all the show notes there. Thank you very much for listening and I look forward to meeting you again.